So what is it about policing these days that seems to have a lot of people upset? Hi, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Russell, Ontario, Canada. This is the Canadian Intelligence, eh? Podcast about national security and public safety. I'm recording this in early January of 2023. So again, belated Happy New Year to my listeners. We're looking at coming up on almost a year anniversary of... Not sure what to call it. The shit show in downtown Ottawa, um, disturbance, some called it an act of terrorism, some called it a carnival, uh, you know, whatever term you want to use. I'm speaking, of course, of the so-called Freedom Convoy that descended in Ottawa in late January of last year, kind of took over a few downtown streets, set up some bouncy castles, some barbecues. It all ended when the Trudeau government decided to bring in the Emergencies Act, which is essentially, that's, no, let's not dress this pig up with lipstick. It's basically a suspension of civil liberties. And then and the inquiry was held into what this all meant. Was the government, in fact, um, legitimate? Was it authorized to do this? And we haven't got the results from Judge Justice Rudolph yet. They'll probably come later on this year. But it raised a lot of questions about policing and about policing sort of relationship with other parts of government. And so I decided to bring back into the conversation someone that was on my podcast almost two years ago, Chris Lewis. He, of course, is the was a former <clears throat> commissioner of the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police here in, in Ontario, Canada. I've known Chris for an awful long time. I have a lot of respect for his, his views on policing. We're going to talk about these matters and others. So Chris, belated Happy New Year and welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Same to you and thanks for having me, Phil. Let's start with a very simple question, Chris. You know, for those who, my listeners, who aren't Canadian, jurisdiction is an interesting issue from a law enforcement perspective here in Canada. Of course, we have the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which I think most people have heard of, you know, the Red Surge and the horses, all that kind of stuff. There are federal police force. Then, of course, two provinces, including here in Ontario and, and in Quebec, have provincial forces. Then we have municipal forces. Then we have the RCMP acting as provincial forces in eight of the ten provinces and municipal police in a lot of communities. So can you unwrap this for listeners? Like, How are these jurisdictional differences handled among so many different players in, in Canada? Well, it, it's really not all that complex when you're... you're out there doing the job the, you know it's it sounds very it sounds like the electrical wiring diagram for the space shuttle but it's really <laughs> not it um really there's provincial police departments in all 10 provinces but the mounties happen to do it under contract contract policing yeah. yeah yeah rather than form their own uh and then same with municipalities the quebec provincial police and the opp police a number of municipalities in those provinces under contract and the Mounties do the same in the provinces where they're the provincial police. But they're also the FBI, for lack of a better term, yeah. in terms of organized crime, national security, etc. So quite often the lines are blurred, but we work it out. Um, in the case of, uh, for example, the uh, protests in Ottawa, it was clearly the responsibility of the Ottawa City Police. They turned to the province for help. That was the OPP. They also turned to other municipalities. Uh, but because the parliament buildings are right in the heart of Ottawa, the RCMP have some mandate there. Uh, and so they were immediately part of the team working together and eventually brought more resources and help as other departments did. But it really, it really works itself out, whether it be organized crime investigations or whatever. Sometimes there's a clear mandate within the organization. Sometimes there's a physical jurisdiction issue. Sometimes it's blurred, but they work together. I'm glad to hear you say that because I think the public perception that certainly came out of what happened in Ottawa last year was that it wasn't working very well, that there were competing forces with computing, 
competing jurisdictions, maybe some personalities got involved. But more specifically, Chris, when it comes to the part, what you call a parliamentary precinct. So, so again, for those of my listeners who aren't from Ottawa, Parliament Hill is is right smack in the center of Ottawa. On that sort of on one side is the Ottawa River, and the other side is it's what's called Wellington Street. Traditionally, the parliamentary grounds themselves were the jurisdiction of the RCMP, the streets surrounding of the Ottawa police. And then within Parliament, of course, you have the Senate and you have Parliament. And, and, and historically, there were two different security forces there. In the aftermath of the attack in 2014 by Michael Zahapi Bo, of course, he's the guy that killed Nathan Cirillo, who was a corporal standing on her duty at the National Cenotaph, uh, unarmed. And then the... Uh, Islamist, the jihadi, basically, he got in his car, went to Parliament Hill, tried to breach the perimeter. He was killed almost immediately. There was talk about changing the, the sort of the way we did things in a very, very small area. So we're talking, you know, a couple hundred meters square in total. And yet, at least historically, we had a sort of, I wouldn't call them competing forces, but maybe a little unclear in terms of who's responsible for what. And then, of course, an inquiry was held. Some recommendations were made. So would you say that with what happened in January, February last year, that it was handled better than perhaps in the past because some changes have been made to who was really responsible for what in the parliamentary precinct? I think that for sure there was uh, some competing interest there. I think mostly at the leadership level, not at the working level where folks just work together and do whatever they need to do to help one another, regardless of you know the patch on their shoulder. Right. Um, and I think it was better in that the parliamentary security service has been really augmented and given life in a way they're under the command of a, a former RCMP senior officer. Uh, and I, so I think it was it was better this time. But there was a lot of drivers for the kind of the, the joint forces model right back to the Bernardo murders in the greater Toronto area. Yeah. Uh, you know, years ago where, you know, inquiries and studies showed that agencies weren't cooperating and weren't communicating. And, and, and a lot of it really fell then and, and, and off and on since to leadership to, well, I'm not going to let that guy come into my area because I'm the chief, blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, it, it's rare now, but it still does happen. And I think we saw a bit of that in Ottawa last February. No, there's no question, Chris, that on occasion, you know, personalities are going to enter into the fray. Sometimes people don't get along or they want to, as you say, establish their patch kind of thing and show that, you know, we're, we're sort of in control here. As, as a former commissioner, and I, you know, I, now you're retired, so you're a little more free in what you can and cannot say. <laughs> Politicians, obviously, they'll speak up on occasion. They'll say things. And, and we, you know as well as I do that, you know, not all politicians are necessarily the sharpest pencils in the box sometimes. How is it from a policing perspective when you're dealing with a situation that's evolving, it's changing, you're trying to allocate resources in the best way possible, and then you get some absolutely asinine remark made by a politician, and we saw that certainly here in Ottawa, whether it was at the federal level or the municipal level or whatever, they'll say something and then sort of all your good work goes out the window because it basically undermines what you're trying to do. How frustrating is that as a you know the one responsible for, for a police force? Very frustrating. And I mean, I saw it at all different levels during my career, uh, you know, particularly the command levels. Uh, I was really fortunate as commissioner in that, uh, you know, the provincial government of the day in a very nonpartisan way, uh, they really didn't try and kind of push us around, didn't say a lot of, you know, kind of dumb things to use that term that caused us to have to react. 
there was the occasional government inquiry into stuff where it became very partisan. And, and you know, when I showed up to testify as to something, whether it be the orange ambulance uh, debacle or, or other things, uh, politicians on all sides were either trying to protect themselves or, or really take stabs at others. And sometimes I ended up with a monkey in the middle that had to wear some of it. And that frustrated me, but it really didn't, I don't think, bother the thousands and thousands of folks out there that are doing the job every day. It was my issue to deal with. And and I always protected them all I could. And, uh, and I always spoke the truth. And if the politicians didn't like it, too bad for them. Well, and that's what this is what we call, I think, obviously, on our law enforcement to do is to speak truth to power, right? Because that's what that's your job kind of thing. Their job is, of course, is to get elected and get reelected and paint things the way they are. There's no question, though, Chris, that in the in the sort of aftermath of the rural inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act last year, that some things were said, some things were claimed that didn't put law enforcement here in Canada in a good light, whether it was jurisdiction battles or it was personality clashes. Speaking as somebody who you know spent as long in, as, as you did in policing, what kind of effect does this have on the sort of the day-to-day stuff and the men and women in uniform who are out there doing the best job they can, and yet they get this very negative feedback that, you know, oh, you guys aren't competent, you don't know what you're doing, you're doing the wrong thing. It must have a, an impact on morale, doesn't it? It does for sure. And we went through similar issues around the, a lot of the criticism from journalists, from politicians, uh, uh, you know, various political stripes and the public uh, during a lot of the uh, Aboriginal protests that we had, including Caledonia, mm-hmm. you know, after Ipperwash, uh, Cornwall, Aquasasin area and whatnot, where we, you know, they were accusing our people of being biased against non-natives or biased you know, against natives. And, and it really, it really got frustrating. A lot of our people it really wore on them because they're members of communities and they got to go home and listen to their neighbors yeah. recite all the, yeah. you know, the crap that some politician has said that isn't even true in, in a number of cases. And uh, it, it gets them down. So that's where leadership really gets important in terms of publicly defending your people. Uh, where possible, you know, telling the truth. Uh, and sometimes you, you have to say, yeah, we probably could have done better on that than we did. But other times it was clearly defending what they were doing. And uh, and that was my job or the job of the commissioner of the day, like Julian Fantino and others, to, right. to do that, to try and restore morale and defend your people. A, a challenge for sure. Let's pursue this a little bit more, Chris. I, you know, in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing in Minneapolis a couple of years ago, now huge protests against policing. Talk about you know disbanding entire police forces because they were systemically racist, a term that I simply cannot stand, uh, you know, that they're doing it all wrong and that we have to basically demolish the whole thing and start from scratch. I was speaking recently, I won't name the person, but a, a former, a very senior police officer here in Canada who has said that he has heard, now, not solely because of George Floyd and other incidents, but he has been told that, in fact, when it comes to openings for senior positions in major police forces, that they've detected a decrease in people willing to put their names forward for candidacy. And I'm wondering um, if, if A, if you've heard something similar, and B, if so, uh, is the perceived uh, level of problems in policing across North America, is this contributing towards people saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not putting my hat in that ring because it can only end badly for me. And then C, uh, if this in fact is true, where does this take 
our, our senior leader, police leadership here in North America. I mean, people are going to be applying for these jobs. Um, they may not be, in fact, staffed by the best possible candidates. And what's the implications for policing writ large? Well, there are huge implications. Uh, and, and I haven't really heard that. I mean, you look at the recent uh, chief competitions, Ottawa, um, Toronto specifically, um, they've you know had a lot of very capable people apply. Uh, you hate to see that not occur because you don't want people taking the job for no other reason than ego. Uh, if they're not in it for the right reasons to really lead and provide the proper leadership for the organization, the team to be successful, they shouldn't be there. Uh, and, but we saw that long ago before the George Floyd and a lot of those protests. I think what George Floyd and some of the, the fallout from that, I mean, those guys, the, the officer that knelt in his neck needed to be convicted of murder. I'm glad he was. But does that mean the whole organization is racist? Did he even do that because he was racist or because he was an idiot? Who knows? But but the bottom line is it's affected uh, applicants. The recruit pool, I think, has dwindled. And I don't think we're getting the applicants and police services that we once did, the quality applicants. Still getting good ones, still getting some that should never apply. Uh, but I think overall the numbers across the board are down. And I'm hearing that from instructors and old friends from policing at the various colleges across Ontario for sure, uh, and elsewhere. They're just not getting the volume of recruit. So that that can have an impact ultimately on the success of the police department if you're not hiring the best that you can hire. Well, and it is a very noble profession. And I think that, you know, if people are not willing to take the chance and even people who may have at one point thought they wanted to become police officers are now having second thoughts based on, as you said, you know, how am I going to be around the, you know, the neighborhood barbecue when everyone's, you know, sort of shooting arrows at me for what police did or didn't do. That's, that's a really good point. Chris, well, they end up it. standing at that barbecue, to, you know, really trying to tell the reality what occurred yeah. as opposed to the biased version that some journalist reported or some politician who was anti-government, uh, you know, like in, in the opposition uh, said publicly just to paint a, a bad picture. So you end up defending and defending and defending it. You know, just for example, in the Caledonia situation, there was you know some journalists, some I respected, but they still said things that really weren't true uh, around us not you know going in and arresting the people on that piece of property months after the fact. Well, the piece of property got bought by the Liberal government of Ontario, and they told the the protesters on there, "You can stay there till we sort this out in court," because mm-hmm. there was ongoing civil processes. So what was our authority to go and arrest them at that point? Yeah. We had none. Yeah. We couldn't even yeah. do them for trespassing, which is just a ticket, let yeah. alone arrest them and haul yeah. them off and risk lives and maybe take lives uh, in the process. So how does some poor constable standing around a barbecue at a neighborhood party explain yeah. all that to the yeah. public? It's really difficult. And that's where the leadership had to come in and try and explain those things. And I did that. In fact, I, you know, I even went on YouTube at one point. Uh, and, and really told the story uh, of what was going on. And, uh, you know, some criticized that, some lauded it, but the bottom line is it needed to be done. And, you know, and it, you know as well as I do, Chris, whether you're working in law enforcement or security intelligence, the story that gets publicized, that makes the front pages, is rarely uh, definitive. It's rarely complete in terms of its information because, you know, some things are simply not available publicly, either because they're sensitive or because they're ongoing. They, they they sell newspapers kind of thing. And, and you're absolutely right. I, you know, those of us who worked in that, we, you also get tired of defending, I think, after a while. You know, you think, I don't want to spend the rest of my life with my neighbors and friends constantly having to 
justify what my employer is doing and what I'm doing when I go to work in, in every day. And it, it must really wear on people emotionally after a while. It does for sure. And when you think of the, you know, the uh, indigenous protests that we had right across the country, all linked and whatever you did at one got, tra- <clears throat> excuse me, communicated to the one down the highway. And then there was yeah. more reaction than there should have been and, and on and on. And so officers are dealing with that day in and day out. And then they go home to get some much needed rest. They've been away from their families and now they're listening to it in the local media. You know, they got the neighbors and the people in the shopping centers saying, what the hell's going on down there? And it just, we had a lot of people say, I'm out, I'm tapping out. I'm not going anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to Caledonia. I'm not going to Tyendinaga. Uh, so the huge leadership challenges came from that. And then we, I felt awful so from some of our people. They were burnt out, and just mentally and physically exhausted from it all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Chris, you've read a few pieces recently for CP24, and I'll put links to them in the podcast. They're, they're both linked. And this, of course, is in the, the fact that we've had a number of police officers killed in the uh, within a matter of weeks last year in 2022. Uh, Toronto Police Constable, Tooth from uh, South Simcoe, an RCMP constable, and of course, more, most recently, another person killed. And, and you, you make the point that one of the issues be, be behind at least some of these killings is what you call the catch and release program, which essentially, you know, people are arrested, they are charged, and then they are basically released upon their own recognizance or bail kind of thing. And in some cases, these people have gone on to to murder, not necessarily other police officers, but other people. Uh, you know, I've heard people say, well, why is it that police officers get so much attention when they're killed? What about the average person? And I say, well, it's not really like that. But the p- fact remains is that if at 2 o'clock in the morning something bad is happening, your average Canadian doesn't have to get out of bed and deal with it, whereas your average police officer does. And they find themselves in dangerous situations. So, you know, as, as you know, when you were commissioner of the OPP, of course, I'm sure you dealt with situations where OPP officers have been killed. Uh, how's that like to deal with when when people that you know work for you and people that with wh- whom you respect are out there doing the best job they can, and for you know wh- whatever the circumstances, they're they're killed on duty. I, what, what does it do to you? Well, it really takes a chunk of you away that never comes back. Uh, unless you're just such a cold fish, you don't care, and I, yeah. I just don't see. I haven't seen that really within policing. I've seen weak leaders, but I've certainly I haven't seen anyone that didn't care. Um, in the you know my case, uh, some of the young officers and, and older officers from from a young officer shot and killed with three beautiful kids and a lovely wife and a wonderful family uh, to a guy that was five years past retirement getting killed in a high speed chase trying to catch a bad guy. Wow, uh, saw it all and. Um, you know, and many, many others. Some I was physically present for, involved in shootings where officers were killed and uh, or investigated the, the the shooting of officers. So it just, you know, as a leader, you try so hard to be strong for your people because they're destroyed. And some of them are questioning whether or not they want to continue, whether it's the job for them. And their families are questioning whether they should continue. And so trying to keep keep people positive and help them move forward and deal with it always was tiring it was the right thing to do it wore me out and every one of them there was a chunk of me gone that i never got back i'm not complaining the officers that we're dealing with it had a lot more on their plate than i did uh but just from my perspective is what i found and and i i even found it recently with the uh, the murder of Constable percella down in haldeman county uh, who i never knew but i knew his sergeant i knew his staff sergeant i knew his inspector I knew others that knew them, and and just watching what they were going through, and knowing a young life was lost, 
so senselessly, it affected me in my role with CTV, uh, you know, providing commentary. Mm-hmm. I, I found I got to the point where it just, it was like I was back as the commissioner trying to deal with it all and trying to help people through it again. That's my cross to bear. I'm not complaining. I'm not whining. Look at, look at me. I'm just saying mm-hmm. that's the reality of how it affects leaders. And of course, you know, uh, we've had the most recent killing of uh, Constable Gray Pierce He was um, killed by somebody who was out on bail for firearms charges and for assaulting a police officer at the time of the killing. And the, and the current OPP commissioner, Thomas Karika, said, would Constable Pierce Chala have been murdered if Randall McKenzie had still been in custody? And you raised the point, uh, I'm quoting here from your article, this issue is as old as the hills and comes from the failings of various governments. But in my view, the past several years has seemingly been the worst period for government decision-making that negatively impacts public safety in my 45-year connection with law enforcement. Okay, Chris, I'm going to give you miraculously uh, all the power in the world, uh, and you're going to implement changes so that things like uh, Constable Pierce Chala's killing is less possible or less likely. Um, what would you do if you had the ultimate power in this case? We have to tilt, tilt the scales of balance of uh, justice back towards public safety. We can't jail everybody, nor should we. Uh, you know, some 80-year-old guy writes a bad check. Let's not hold him in custody right. an hour or two to fingerprint him. At the other end of it, you got Paul Bernardo. So where in the middle does reality kind of meet yeah. where you say, you know what, if we let this guy go, based on these facts, he's likely to reoffend. He's likely to jeopardize public safety, maybe take a life, whether that be a bail or a parole issue. And right now, we're letting them go for things like shooting people. Mm-hmm. There was a time in my career, if you, if you got caught doing a break and enter, you might be held a couple of weeks in, in jail, let right. alone released on bail for shooting people. Right. You know, we're not getting tough on crime. So, so all the Crown attorneys, all the legislation, all the judges need to be in the same page. That's the way it needs to be. Let's make decisions based on that. Not hold everybody, but let's hold the ones that are continued threat to society. I've always argued, Chris, that, you know, as societies, we seem to be pendular. We're either at one extreme. So as you said, go back, go back 100 years, for example, where people, I'm thinking even back even further, where people were jailed for stealing a loaf of bread, let's say, in revolutionary France in the 1790s. Uh, You know, we're we're very tough on crime, all types of crime, irrespective of it was personal crime, whatever kind of thing. Now we're at that other end of the pendulum where, well, it was probably, you know, probably nothing will happen if we let this guy go kind of thing. Why can't we seem to f- to have find that happy medium that you that you are talking about? You know, why is that, that we can't say okay? Yes, the guy who steals from a grocery store should probably not do jail time. There are other things we can get him to do, but as a guy that's guilty of a shooting offense, well, yeah, he is a danger to the public. What is it that, that as humans we seem to be capable of? Is this lobby groups? Is this pressure groups doing this? Like, what is it that's got to the situation where we are today? I think a little bit of of it is the the pressure groups uh you know and the one uh, uh, piece of legislation i think it was bill c75 where they made some changes to the criminal code and and they talk about bail and they talk about you know the overrepresentation of indigenous uh, yeah. and people of color uh, yeah. you know being held pre-trial and in, in prison so so there's some political decisions there and i, I agree that's a real issue but 
you know, that's, those are kind of sentencing issues. If someone's a threat to public safety, let's not let him out. I don't care if he's pink and green, you know, what his background is or how tough his childhood was. Uh, if you're a threat to public safety, you're a threat to public safety. And, and the other thing is the system is designed and mostly ran by previous defense attorneys. And, you know, you've oh. got judges who were civil trial uh, lawyers, you know, and, and sued McDonald's for spilling a coffee in somebody's crotch that was too hot. And now your judge making a decision on a public safety issue. And, and, and many of them are wonderful and do a fantastic job, but there's not enough there to look at th- that look at things from the Crown Attorney perspective. And uh, so I think that's where the system is tipped just too far the other way. And we need to bring it back. It needs to be reasonable and needs to err on the side of public safety, not on the, you know, the fact that this poor guy had a bad childhood. So let's let him out on bail. He shot somebody. Why are we letting him out on mm-hmm. bail? Because he right. probably won't shoot somebody else. <laughs> it makes no sense. Like Bernardo might not have killed anymore either. But right. let's be serious. You know, yeah. It, I, recently, there's a case in Peel where a guy was out on bail for shooting someone and attempted murder, and then he was arrested again for shooting two more people in two counts of attempted murder. Wow. I mean, those other two people that were shot shouldn't have been shot. That guy shouldn't have been released yet. In my view, knowing the, the few facts that I do. Right. You taught me something, Chris. I didn't realize that um, defense, former defense attorneys were overrepresented in this. That That's something that I didn't realize. So it stands to reason that people whose lives were made on trying to get the best possible conditions for their clients, in other words, to get them off, are now making decisions. Well, it stands to reason that they would want to release more people because that's kind of what they're made of, right? For sure. And then you look at the Supreme Court of Canada decisions, look at the Supreme Court. Some wonderful justices have been there currently and in the past. How many of them were crown attorneys and saw that other side of the world? How many of them were in civil court dealing with stuff or, 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 you know, parental issues and things with marriage breakdowns and as opposed to really heavy duty criminal work from both perspectives, not just the defense perspective? Not very many. I think at the end of the day, I think we as Canadians, what we expect from our courts and from our judicial systems is that, you know, we will be kept safe to the best you know degree possible. There's no such thing as perfection. Violent crimes sure. will occur, uh, irrespective of, of the measures you take kind of thing, because things do happen. But Chris, as usual, you, you've you've raised some really interesting points, I think, about public safety uh, in the criminal justice system here in Canada. Uh, again, um, I thank you for your many, many decades of service, not just to the people of Ontario, but the people of Canada in this regard. And the fact that you're still very active in, you know, um, sharing your opinion, your very well-informed opinion on matters like this. And um, I I hope to read and and see more of you in the future. And and thanks for coming again on the podcast. Always my pleasure, Phil. Enjoy working with you. Always have. And uh, anything we can, you and I, even though we're kind of semi-retired, can do to make things better, I think we should do. And thank you for having me be a part of that. Chris and Phil save the world. That's to be the name of the new podcast, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. So that was my conversation. My second conversation with Chris Lewis, who, of course, was uh, once the commissioner of the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police. What do you think about this notion about how public safety is, is not really being served by the decisions made by government? Love to hear your feedback. You can reach me on email, borealisrisk at gmail.com or on Twitter at borealisaves. You can also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. If you like this content and want to get more, go to the website, borealisthreatenrisk.com. Hit the subscribe button. You'll get access to all the podcasts and all the blogs free of charge. Love to hear your feedback as perhaps some ideas for future podcasts. 
We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe.